I, uh, I'll do a little introduction in a minute, but I taught through this chapter when I was a pastor, and I spent three weeks doing it. So that was about 50 minutes of teaching. So if you all don't mind, we're going to be here for about two and a half, three hours. And uh, I promised Craig I would keep him awake. So um, I want to pray and ask the Lord to lead us. I believe that I have delivered a number of messages in my own strength over the years. And I'm hoping today would be completely different and that the Holy Spirit would take control of me and help me to preach. But then he would also do something for you also, that he would take my simple words, what I'm speaking today, and that he would open your heart and your mind and your lives to his word, and then it would have drastic change on our lives. That's why we're here, right? We are here for God to come and invade our lives and invade our spirits and to use his word to, to break us down. And I'll share a little of that today so that he can make us into the people that he wants us to be. And if he could use me to do a portion of that in your life today, then what we do here today would be of spiritual benefit. So let's take just a brief moment and pray that God would do that in your heart, please. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the word of God. Chapter 7 is a very interesting chapter of scripture, as they all are. We would ask, I ask, Lord, that you take control of me. I believe that upon salvation, the Holy Spirit came to permanently indwell me. He prompts me through my life. And I pray, Lord, that for this next time, I would just be submitted to you. I would allow you to take control of me and that you would do that. And you would use the things that I've done, the studying, and the planning, and the praying. You would use it to touch our lives. We thank you in your precious name. Well, I'd just like to share a little bit of my history since there's some new folks here that don't know me. Uh, Mike Brill, a portion of my family is in the front row here. And we picked up two more guys here that are living in our basement every now and then. They come up out of the basement. And Jerry and Roque, they're living with us. I'm glad to have them. Um, brief history, we came to, to Lake Mills. Uh, we owned and operated Cafe on the Park. Our lives have gone in decade segments. We owned Cafe on the Park for 10 years. I went to school uh, to be a preacher for 11 years, and then I pastored uh, for 10 years after that. So now uh, we have a coffee business, and I fling pizza around Jefferson County and honk the horn when I see you. <laughs> My second decade of life, from 10 to 20-ish, was full of drugs and alcohol. Started out early. And I progressed, and I became really good at it. And, and I'm going to share a five-week segment of that time with you. I shared this with my family last night. Uh, it started out, I had a little Fiat X19. It was a little 
car, mid-engine, little two-seater, and I went out, got drunk, and I rolled it. And uh, my buddy was behind me, and he came up, and he came up on the accident. I'm standing in the, in the road, and he said, his name was Clavin. He said, hey, where's Tom? And I was like, and I looked in the car, and he's in there. I said, Tom, you all right? And I said, yeah. I said, well, then get out of there. So uh, I, got, uh, I, I met the policeman the day after, and I got a ticket for failure to report an accident. So that's one car down. Hopped in my mom's car, and I was a rock and roll drummer, and we were playing in the UP. We were playing in the UP somewhere, I'm not sure, a little bar up there. Drank too much again, got in my mom's car because I didn't have one anymore. And I uh, was coming home, was in a little bit of a hurry. So I, I passed two semis and um, around a corner. And the uh, policeman pulled me over and I got two tickets for speeding and passing illegally. So I came home and my mother took her car away because she had no sense of humor, go figure. And uh, so I, I'm down my car, my mother took her car away so that my brothers had a cycle. So I hopped on the cycle, went to the bar, got pulled over a policeman coming home because I was speeding. And then he checked my license, it was at night, and I, didn't, I had a temp license and you couldn't drive at night. So he said, <laughs> it was a rough five-week segment in my life. And the law, the law doesn't have a sense of humor either. It's like your mother. The law doesn't have a sense of humor. And when the weight of the law came down on Mike Rowe, they said, good job, give us your money and give us your license. And I did both of those things. Here's a question. What would have happened had I died? What effect would that law have upon me? Well, it wouldn't have any effect on me, would it? Because I'd be dead. The law would have no effect upon me. As it was, the full weight of the law came down. certainly didn't change my attitude towards it. But I'm glad, by the way, I lived through that time. My oldest brother, Ray, and I laugh about those times. And um, many of you, I know, would have a similar testimony to some of those things, I hope and pray for my family that they avoid some of those things. But Paul is going to start out Romans 7, giving us that kind of illustration. In Romans 7, 1, he's going to tell us that we are set free from the law. Okay? Romans 7, 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul is using this illustration for us to say that we are dead to the Old Testament law. Now, marriage and divorce. Uh, if you're a divorced person here today, know this. Know this, please. You are not a second-class Christian. You are not a second-class person. If you are here today and you are in a divorced state of mind, you have every bit, every, you have as much opportunity to live a fulfilled, glorious Christian life as anybody else in the world. Correct, everybody? It, it, if you do what God says. If you repent of your sin, it's the same with, with anything. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And you can have 
a wonderful relationship with God as you go through that. But the point is, if you were married in this, in this situation and, you, and the husband died, the woman is free to marry again. And there is no law against that. So likewise, verse 4 says, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another to him has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. So we are dead to the law. Romans is full of death. The book of Romans is full of death. And Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him, with Christ. And someone who has died to something simply cannot respond to it. If you're dead to the law, the law has no effect on you. Well, what was the law for? If we are dead to the Old Testament, then what's the purpose of the Old Testament? What was the law for? Paul writes in Galatians that it was to show us how sinful we are. The law was never a means to make anyone righteous before God. The law itself cannot make anyone righteous. A true believer in Jesus Christ has been freed. Now, Paul is trying to tell us something, okay? A true believer in Christ has been freed from trying to keep any belief system whereby the individual does certain things to make himself or herself holy enough for God. It simply cannot happen. A person can do nothing in this life. There is no performance-based Christianity. And Paul is going to tell us that in a powerful way today to try to get us to see something. Acceptable to God. You know, if I do this and this and this, and I don't do this and this and this, then I am accepted before God. I believe that's a normal inclination of man's spirit. We desire to do, in fact, Paul will tell us, but we desire to do the right thing. That's a good thing. What's the motive behind it? I'll bet everybody, I don't bet, I know that everybody in this room in some measure believes at some point in time that his or her performance brings them closer to God. How much Holy Spirit does a believer have upon salvation? Does a believer have partial eternal life? Dependent upon performance? Is there something I can do to get more of the Holy Spirit? Is there something I can do to receive more of Jesus Christ? Is there something I can do to gain eternal life? Paul says believers are freed from the law, not to do anything you want, but to belong to another. Christ didn't die on the cross so that if we're not performance-based, then we could just go about living any way we want to live. That's completely contrary to anything in the Scripture. Anytime you talk about being freed from the law, the issue of license come into the picture. Well, if grace rules, then I can do this and this. And Paul certainly heard that because he says, God forbid. Believers are free from trying to get right before God by their action, and Paul is a classic example of that. No one will ever be made righteous before God by his or her works in any way, shape, or form. 
It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believers are freed from the law to be married to another. Why? So they can bear fruit. Interesting fruit is, is, to, be, is to be fertile. The believer has a, a much higher standard of living than any attempted law keeper. Bound by an even greater law. The love of Jesus. To bear fruit. The fruit of a righteous life. Being filled with righteousness. Being fertile grounds for righteousness. Being fertile grounds, making, working over our heart by the word of God and all the things in the Christian life. Working over our heart, letting God plow, letting God break through, which he has done to me multiple times in my life. But working through our heart to make it fertile so that he can speak to us through the message today and going home and having your devotions tomorrow and praying with your wife and praying for your kids and, and doing all the things that Christianity asks us to do, doing those things to make our heart moldable and pliable for the word of God to penetrate so that we can walk in righteous life, not performance-based. There's two different things. They're poles apart. Which one are you doing today? If you're like me, you're probably doing both. You probably slip and slide between the two of them. He writes in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, this is a hard portion of scripture. And we could just camp here and try to walk through each of these verses. But you, you do want to eat lunch today. So we're going to kind of go through. We're going to hit the low points. Okay? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passion aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Well, there's an exciting passage. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that may we serve in a new way of the spirit and not by the old way of the written code. Again, if you're here today, and in any way, shape, or form, you're trying to gain anything from God by your actions, you're here for the wrong reason. Those actions don't produce eternal life. Paul says they produce the fruit of death. Your self-effort by itself will produce death. If you're here today, and you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you are thinking, I'm good enough, I'm, I'm not as bad as my oldest brother, which is my case, I'm not as bad as he is, I never have been, and I probably never will be. If you're thinking today, I'm not as bad as that guy, and thereby God accepts me, you're just plain wrong. That is the fruit unto death, and it's worse than that, it's the fruit unto eternal death. And a person in that state has no hope of heaven. Until they go through this passage, what Paul does, and come out the other end. So the key in understanding Romans 7, what Paul is saying in this passage, and applying it today, he says, I was held captive. I was held down by the law. A very merciless standard from God. You do this, and you do it perfectly, I will accept you. 
if you don't do, if you do something that you're supposed to do, well, whatever I'm trying to say there, we're going to get to the end of it, Paul. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to hear more about that later. But Paul was held captive. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do that, then, then and uh, um, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do the right thing, I'll curse you. There, I got it out. It's all about performance. Here's the key. Paul, in Romans 7, spoke about his relationship to God in a physical sense. The law says, do, do, do. So Paul said, I'm going to do, do, do. The law says, don't do, don't do, don't do. And Paul Physical law was saying, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, therefore I'm right before God. If you get that in your head, Romans 7 will make a lot more sense. Paul is saying there is no performance that we can do, but he is the one trying to do that in this passage. The relationship with God was a physical one. I have to do all the right things and avoid all the wrong things. And Paul was good at it. In fact, he was so good at it, he went about to kill Christians. That's what the law did to him. Paul was so good at following the law that he went about in the book of Acts to kill us. Wow. That's a performance. Anybody know what legalism is? Would you consider Paul a legalist? I was a legalist. I was trained in an incredibly solid Baptist church in town here by a very godly pastor. He poured himself into my wife and I and our kids. He loved us dearly. He was... He was, he was a very godly man. I went to school at Maranatha in Watertown and got a solid, biblical-based training, and I'm thankful for it. Now, please don't hear what I'm about to say and refer to all Baptists, because we have Baptist doctrine here. <gasps> but in my legalism, this is what I was taught, and this is what I learned, and this is what I excelled at. Use only the King James Version, because the others are corrupt. So, though I couldn't read, it's not a great Bible to, to start with when you can't read real well, is the King James Version. You always wear a suit and tie. Never went to church without a suit and tie. Your hair must be a certain length, an inch shorter than mine. You certainly can't have, where's Michael? You can't have a 2-4 beat in your music. It's evil. It is, and you can prove it with Scripture. I know I did it. You certainly don't dance. I would tell my kids when music come out, I'd say, keep those hips stationary. I did. I excelled at it. When, the, when we watched the Packer game before remote control, I took, <laughs> remember this, Daniel? I took a dowel and connected it to the TV 
so that I could turn the commercials down because I didn't want the rock music of the commercial into my house. That makes sense to anybody? Because I didn't want to get on the slippery slope. I was warned, if you do these things, you'll get on the slippery slope. And when you get on the slippery slope, you won't be able to stop yourself. Certainly can't dance. My wife and I went to Family Life uh, Weekend to Remember, which is coming up here shortly. And you can, you can get, a, I think, 100 bucks off if you go to this. I'd encourage every married couple to go here. But uh, if you want to, God, to bless your marriage, this is a great step to take. But one of the comments the guy was saying, he was talking about different religions when they were talking about sex. And he says, you can't mention the word sex to Baptists because they're afraid it will lead to dancing. So you just don't talk about that because you might start dancing. I thought that was funny. You know what? I became good at keeping those standards. I preached those standards. I lived those standards to the best of my ability. Did I not, Nance? Guys? I lived those standards to the best of my ability. There's really nothing wrong with standards. There's really nothing wrong with the King James Version. There's nothing wrong with a suit and tie as long as I'm not in it. There's nothing wrong with, 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 with having standards. We all have standards. What's wrong is when you do those things, which is what I did. Sad to say, I'm starting to preach here all of a sudden. I became better than you. Because you were not using a King James Version. And I became better than you because you had long hair. And my wife became better and my kids became better. We were better. We were like Paul. And God, man, it took a long time for me to break out of that. Years. It was years I trained my entire family. I was trained to be a fundamentalist, not the fundamentals of the faith. I was trained to be a fundamentalist. I trained my family to be a fundamentalist. And then God started to break through my legalism, and I started to shift my thought pattern, and boy, did we have conflict in our house. Oh, I didn't know who I was. My wife didn't know who I was. My kids, some of them were like, right on, Dad. The other one was like, whoa, what's going on with Dad. My daughter came home, and I had music on that had a beat to it. And she said, Mom, Dad's a hypocrite. <laughs> Nan said, why? He tells us not to listen to that, but he's listening to it. Well, maybe you should go talk to him about it. She did. Paul was very good at keeping the Ten Commandments, plus the other 600 or so. And all they did was produce the fruit of death. Paul thought, I can do this and I can keep from doing that. But Paul realized he had to serve in a new way, a way of the spirit and not in the way of the old written code. It's not a physical relationship with God. It's a spiritual relationship with God. So look what Paul came to the realization in verse 7. 
What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, thou shall not covet. Well, wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean? So you just coveted? Well, covet here is better translated lust. It's a longing, especially for what is forbidden, usually in a sexual realm. This word is usually translated lust. Paul said, I would not have known not to covet unless the law said it. Paul's a Pharisee, staunchly legalistic. Listen to this, please. A staunchly legalistic Paul said, I didn't know what it was like to covet. We say, wait a minute, you, you must have known that was wrong. Physically, Paul said. Lust. Okay, I'm, I'm not lusting with that woman, Paul said. Physically, I'm not jumping in the bed with her. Therefore, I'm okay. Everybody see that? Strong desire, strong lust. Paul says, uh, well, at least I'm not going that far with it. That's what the law was telling Paul. Don't go that far. Don't do this. It was the fulfilling of the sin. It was the fulfilling of the strong lust for Paul. I didn't do that, therefore I'm better with God. I'm right with God, as long as I'm not doing that. You get that? The physical relationship, the fulfilling of it. Paul said, I have not committed adultery, therefore I'm not guilty of strong lust. Remember the key for Paul is he's thinking a physical relationship to God, a law keeper. Here's Paul, a good Pharisee. He's keeping the law. He knew more about the Old Testament than anybody in here. He wrote most of the doctrine in the New Testament. He was an exceptional person. And he said, I'm doing this well, this well, this well. And suddenly, Jesus Christ breaks on the scene and says, thou shalt not have strong lust. Cindy read the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lust. Jesus breaks on the scene and he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, what the passage was speaking about. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Paul's like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. Ah, wow, I mean, come on, you can't be talking about that. I mean, I haven't done that. I haven't committed adultery. Am I not okay? And God said, no. No, you are not okay, Paul. It is not okay for you to think that just because you don't commit the act of adultery that you are in a right relationship with me. I want your heart. I want your heart, Paul. The physical aspect of Christianity will follow, but I want your heart. And Paul was blown away. We need to be blown away. We need for God to come down and do something here. Paul, living a physical life, he's doing well because he is not acting upon his strong desires. But the law isn't physical, mechanical, it's spiritual. Probably most of us 
are not going to jump in bed with someone who's not her husband and wife, and thereby we will fulfill that law. But can anybody here, anybody say before Jesus Christ is their witness that I haven't lusted? He says, but our sin, in verse 8, seizing an opportunity, the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised uh, life proved to be death to me, Paul says, for sin seizing up to the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The law will kill you. Your legalism will kill you. It killed me. But self-effort is so human, isn't it? And you have the best demonstration of self-effort I can remember in my pastorate. A wife came to us and said, ah, I'm really struggling because my hubby, now don't start dancing here as I say this word, my husband won't have sex with me. Little, that seemed a little odd to me. And so we, I met with him because I, I thought maybe there's something physical wrong with him. So, you know, and he said, well, I've been divorced, and I cannot have sex because that would lead me into adultery. Wow. So he would sleep next to this woman, day, night in, night in, night in, night out, night in, night out, and not have sex. And you know what he said to me? He said, upon further questioning, his self-effort was so powerful that he said he believed by his action that he was keeping himself, in his words, saved. I think that's a major issue for you. Like pride. Like my pride that I had, which I'll share in a minute. So what's the law? In verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The, the law is right, I'm wrong. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown sin, and through the commandment might become and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Have you ever become sinful beyond measure? Paul's really a heathen, isn't he? I'm glad I'm not like that. Do you remember I went, to, I went to college for 11 years, pastored for 10 years? And because of pride in my life, I became sinful beyond measure. I was depressed. I was mad. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was a whack job. I was completely whacked out. I was hurt beyond anything I'd ever experienced. Most of it was internal. I'd cry out to God. I'd say, God, where are you? God, are you not hearing me? My prayers, the, the heavens are brass. God, are you even there? You know what, God? I know you're not there, and I'm not saved. And God, I, you know what? Let's just cancel this thing. God, ah, break me home. Take me home. Just, just take me home. I, this life is just falling apart. I can't understand my head. I can't understand my actions. Everything in this life is just completely whacked out of shape. 
Ever been there? Maybe you're there today. It's the weirdest thing in my life. One man came up to me and said, what would Jesus do? And I said, I thought in my head if he was here, he'd kick you in the face. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Oh, okay, that helped me a lot. I'm not a good person. My self-effort leads to pride. And my pride leads to a disgustedness before God. I am not a good person. But I'm a blood-bought person. By the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that alone, I have everything that pertains to godliness. We'll get more on that in a minute. Paul realized the law is spiritual and his flesh he sold under sin. Now, what actions would be produced by a man like that? Let's find out. What actions were produced by the man that gave us most of our doctrine in the New Testament church? Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I want, I do not want. Now, if I do what. I'm going to get this yet. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. <laughs> you ever do the thing you hate? I mean, how weird is that? Paul said, I don't understand my own actions. I don't even know why I feel this way. Ever done something you've hated before? This passage is speaking about the strong desires of lust, Paul used earlier. Men and women, uh, we lust differently. Men are physical lusters. We see a figure and we lust after the, the, the figure and, and then our minds do these things, and we, and, and we just go, we, we think a certain thought, and we go, why did I think that? What kind of, that, where did that come from? I thought the most wicked, evil, uh, brutally uh, violent thing in my head the, about a week ago that was just, I was like, where did that come from? I don't understand how that possibly happens in my brain. Ladies, you don't lust visual, you lust relational as far as I know. Perhaps you see someone who's, who's somewhat good looking, but boy, does he have a personality and, and you, you kind of fall into lust about a relationship with that person. And then maybe later you're thinking, whoa, where did that come from? Wow, what in the world? How did that ever pop in my mind? You see the war raging in Paul? You see the war raging in your heart? Paul said that his, his sin nature dwells within him. He called himself the chief of sinners. Let's see if I can read 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Anybody have that? But not the ability to carry it out. 
boy, is that not a picture? I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. This guy's schizophrenic. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul cries, who will deliver me from this body of death. This is a doo-doo passage. I call this a doo-doo passage. Because Paul comes down and he says, my life is full of doo-doo. The things that I should do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, I do do. And it all ends up being doo-doo. No one could paint a more vivid picture of what goes on in the human heart than Paul. So what, what do we do? Pun intended. Where do we go? I mean, if we're left here, life is most miserable. If I'm left with a life of doo-doo, well, that'd be bad. Where do we go? Where are you going to go? You know, you're in a trial, right? We're either going into a trial, in a trial, or coming out, right, everybody? We're either going into doo-doo, we're in doo-doo, or we're coming out of doo-doo. Which do you want to do? And how are you going to do it? Paul couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The guy who said, what would Jesus do? Well, maybe that is the answer. Maybe the answer is Jesus. Wait a minute. Maybe Jesus wants to do some sort of thorough deliverance in Mike Rill's mind. James Montgomery Voice, if anybody wants a great commentary on Romans, it's fabulous. It's pretty easy reading. He gives you great thoughts that would blow your brain. He says this, For we as mature in the Christian walk grow closer to Jesus Christ, and thus wanting to be more like him and please him more, the struggle actually grows stronger rather than weaker. Those who struggle most vigorously against him are not immature Christians, but mature ones. The only thing I would take from that is a, I just want to take a little different point. There's two sets of Christians in here today. Mature ones and carnal ones. A mature Christian will fall into doo-doo and they'll struggle and struggle deeply. They'll fall into despair, depression, anger, bitterness, frustration, whatever the doo-doo is. When the trial ends, they are refined by it and they become stronger. That's a mature believer. A carnal Christian can struggle and struggle deeply and fall into despair, depression, anger, bitterness, frustration. And when the trial ends, they go right back to who they were. Which one are you? Which one do you want to be? 
here, Paul is saying, and he has gone through a lot more than anybody in this room for the cause of Christ. The struggle is real. The struggle is potent. The struggle is ongoing, and it seems like it will never end. In a real sense, it never will, because we will always face duty in this life. But Paul wants to see something. You have no self-effort in, your, in yourself that will do much good for anything. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul could find not even the smallest glimmer of hope by his self-effort. And he was far more uh, uh, biblical than any of us were, knowing biblical truths. But the end, Paul said, it's not grim. If you're in doo-doo today, the end, it's hard. I know it is hard. It is brutal. If you're here in doo-doo today, it's not the end. Jesus Christ is the end. If you are here today and you're a Christian and you are in the deep, deep struggle of doo-doo, Jesus Christ is the answer. He has assured every believer that victory over spiritual death has been accomplished by his death. That is victory. Claim it. Hold on to it. He has assured every true believer that victory in this life that he will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5. And he has assured every believer that total victory, meaning eternal life, is the ultimate goal that we're moving towards. You have to see that. You have to cling to that. You have to see where Paul has been, what he's going through, and how he ends this chapter. And next two weeks... There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Jesus Christ. Oh, hang on. Oh, hang on. Please hang on. Put one foot in front of the other. Put one foot in front of the other. And hang on. God will do He's a miracle-working God. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. We're all living in it. Father, man, I have made a mess of my life. I can't believe the things I do. struggle with sin. I struggle with thought patterns. Life at times just seems like doo-doo. And during the deepest, darkest days of my walk, Lord, you walked with me. Though I thought you were gone. I thought you left me. And you never did. I pray for a person here today, Lord, who is in a deep valley. And the doo-doo of life is just overwhelming them, Lord God. Hang on. Hang on. I pray for us who 
gone through duty, Lord, our hearts would be made ever so sensitive and ever so tender and caring and loving towards those. We don't have to have theology, Lord. We have to have your word. Penetrate us with that word. We commit ourselves to you. We commit our day to you. We commit our lives to you, Lord. We trust you. We cling to you. You are precious and Let's finish today with 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.